was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could from things I picked up along the way, stuff that's rattling around inside my head. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast where I try to answer the questions of the day to the best of my ability. And today we're asking a question, if I have a sweater and I want another sweater, I don't want a sweater. What is it that I really want? And the question of why is David better than Solomon in God's eyes? What's going on there? So we're going to explore that. Also, my insatiable need for attention. Probably why I'm a podcaster. All right. Blessings. Peace. Explore. We're getting to the end of Solomon's life here. This description of his many wives uh, hits us quite bluntly uh, that Solomon has the ability to marry 700 women. Um, these 700 are all princesses. They are in some way of noble birth. They uh, have it's gone beyond the point of just mere political alliances at this point. Solomon has made peace with just about everybody. And everyone's made a peace, which in the ancient world meant that you didn't want to get attacked, so you made peace. And that's what he's done with every one of his enemies and allies. And now he's adding these wives to his harem, which can't be described any other way. 700 from all over the place, even from places that aren't even places anymore, like the Hittites. Um, the Hittite civilization ended as a nation state long before Solomon. Uh, and yet um, there are still people called Hittites like Uriah the Hittite. Um, Solomon's mother's first husband was a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. Uh, and so the, all these wives from all over 700 um, have an effect on him. And 300 concubines or porcupines, 300 who are not wives, but are also included in this entourage. Perhaps these are from less noble birth. They are picked because uh, they're good looking or talented or something like that. This is, this is beyond just a normal kind of king thing. Solomon is the, the third king of Israel and Judah, the third king they've had. Saul, of course, then David, and then Solomon. And Solomon is already doing the kind of stuff that kings do, that kings of far more prosperous nations have done. Um, it's hard to imagine the scale. The old joke is Solomon had a thousand wives, but he only loved the first 500 is a joke, but it points to the scale of what we're talking about here. Um, the and, and all the lives that were affected by this, um, not just Solomon's, but the lives of these women and their children, which number in the thousands um, at this point. And so um, it, the, te the, the narrator says, God told him not to do this. God told Solomon not to do this. Do not marry outside of the covenant. 
Um, this, these verses were often used in youth groups and probably still are. Don't marry non-Christian people. Don't date a non-Christian, which really meant just don't date anybody from that doesn't go to this church, particular church, um, or this particular youth group. Don't date a non-Christian because they'll draw your heart away like Solomon. This, these texts were used to, to say why we shouldn't do that. Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, Mr. Youth Pastor, uh, you know, I'm not going to have 700 wives, you know, um, but you can see what's happening here. The, the narrator says, even though the Lord told him not to do this, and he did, does it, it says Solomon clung to these in love. And the Hebrew word there is the word to cling. It, Solomon is clingy. The narrator is telling us that. Being clingy is not a desirable trait in a relationship. It is not something that makes you a good partner. And we're all clingy to some degree or another. I hope so. That's Love is clingy to some degree. Uh, we want to be near people and we want to be around them that we love. And yet there is another part of us sometimes that goes into, I'm going to try to meet my needs any way I can because I have an anxiety, because I have a deep need for attention. Solomon seems to have this. And this is the way he fulfills that need by marrying a thousand women. Uh, when we think about it, um, there is no end to this need. If you think, if you struggle with attention seeking behavior, which I do, um, if you struggle with that um, and you say, well, if I just had that person or if I just was in that circle or I just was able to do that, then I'll be okay. There is no bottom to our existential needs, the ex needs of existence, the needs to feel love, the need to feel safe. That is not something that another person or a thousand people can solve for us. A lot of that has to do with us. And the narrator is telling us that Solomon was clingy. He had it all, but there was no end to his need for attention. And so this is what he does. And now he's got the temple. He's built the temple for God's people. It's a beautiful temple. It's built in a beautiful way. And every time people go to that temple, they walk past about five other temples, to Moloch, to Chemosh, to these other gods and goddesses of the Sidonians, Astarte, Milcom. We don't know much about these gods and goddesses. A lot of what we know about ancient, what we might call pagan worship or non-Jewish worship, is from the Bible. Like That's one of the main sources. We have archaeological evidence of altars and things like that, but they don't always tell us like what happened there. We have some pictures of some stuff that happened, other descriptions. But we know the Bible's reference to these, these gods and goddesses is that they are incredibly destructive deities. They demand sacrifice all the time. And they demand human sacrifice, some of them. Moloch is especially known for this. To, to deliver your children to the fires of Moloch was to take one of your precious children and throw them into the fire before Moloch as an offering to say, here's my best. Here's the best thing I've got. Um, and we know that certain Jewish kings in this time period do this to appease the gods and goddesses. So this idea of the demand for human sacrifice, demand for sacrifice from all these gods and goddesses is a diversion of the resources and love that is supposed to go to the one true and living God. 
the Bible's view of different gods and goddesses is not that there's only one entity in the world that is a god. It's not that there's only one like spiritual being in the universe and the rest is just BS and stuff that people made up. The view of on every page of scripture is that there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of beings and entities out there. And the one that you can trust and the one that loves you and the one that is powerful over all that will be there for you is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the God that you can trust and worship. But it's not that there's not a lot of other stuff out there. And the other stuff out there demands sacrifice, demands attention. And so Solomon, who has had his own attention need for attention, tried to be sated, has turned his divine and worshipful attention to these other gods, and he never comes back from it. Uh, and then God says, listen, this is evil, and I've, I've appeared to you twice. Now, I don't know what God was so busy with up in heaven that here's the most powerful king of his chosen people, Solomon, and God only has time to talk to him twice. You know, he's real busy. <laughs> Wait, I talked to him back 10 years ago, didn't I? Wait, I have to go talk to him again? I don't know what was going on with God and Solomon. But God does bring this up and says, I've talked to you twice. Don't you have any, don't you have any sense? You know, that's more than I talk to most people, um, giving you direct messages. And I told you specifically not to do this. But, and because you've done this, because you've departed from the covenant in such a systematic, legal way, because you've done this, I'm going to take away the thing that you're trying to build. That is the unbroken kingdom that I will give one tribe to your son, but I'll split the rest of the kingdom. And the coming civil war that's going to happen with Solomon's children is a direct result of these marriages. This is what the narrator tells us. Solomon wanted to divide up his loyalties of worship, divide them all up, put all, not put all his eggs in one basket because that basket wasn't real certain. And he wanted to put his eggs in a lot of baskets. And now you want to put your eggs in a lot of baskets? I'm going to put your kingdom in a lot of baskets. You're going to have two different kingdoms that are never, as Taylor Swift said, we are never, ever getting back together. And they never do. They stay apart. Now, the prophecies do speak of some reunification at the end of days. And I hope for that, too. But that's the last moment of this alliance. And then it says, because your father David did a good job, You've done a terrible job, but because of David, I'm going to give you a little bit of a break. I'm going to let one of your sons sit on some sort of throne forever. And this is the son who has a son who has a son who eventually has a son named Jesus. This is the kingship line of Jesus. Comes through Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who loses everything. Um, except for this one tribe, really two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But he says David was a better king than you, a better man than you. Now, if you look at it from any perspective, how in the world was David better than Solomon? David is a messy king. He is the first anointed of his line. He comes from the sheepfold. He does pretty well at the beginning. He kills Goliath and calms Saul down. Then he gets involved with Jonathan, which creates a huge amount of tension within his, Saul's household. He's anointed to be king. He runs from Saul. He has this, and he's still kind of a good fi figure. And then the stuff starts happening. He becomes king. He, the troubles with his wife, Mikkel, Michelle, Michael, happen, where she 
because she's mad at him for stealing her away from her second husband, you know, she despises him. And then there's this curse put on her. And, and there's this like all this stuff starts happening that David starts doing. It's all impulsive stuff like Bathsheba and killing her husband, Uriah. And all this, then the civil war with Absalom, he ends up killing his own son, Absalom, in battle. Like all this stuff happens to David. It's, and, but David pays for it. What he does to Bathsheba and Uriah, his own son dies. There's a plague. He's, he has to run from his enemies. And he gets restored. But you see this, like David does a lot worse stuff than whatever Solomon did was completely legal. He's got lawyers. All these marriages are legitimate marriages. He has done everything right. He's crossed every I and dotted every T. Solomon has done the detail work. And everything he has done is really, really legal, but it's also really, really evil. Because the kind of evil that Solomon does is a systematic, planned evil. You have to build blueprints for it first. You have to build these temples you have to bring these foreign priests in to teach God's people these other religions. You have to do this stuff, and it's all systematic. It's all part of this growing economy. It's the kind of evil that God hates the most. And David didn't do that stuff, even though he did stuff that we look at and say, oh, my word, I can't believe David did that. What Solomon did was worse. Most churches, including the Episcopal Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the, the, the Baptist, the Southern Baptist Convention denomination and other big American churches for many years did this kind of stuff on a big scale. P uh, pastors, clergy, priests would abuse people and they would move them from one place to another and not deal with the real issue that had happened. And it happened in every single church. It happened in the Episcopal Church, too. And we are repenting for that and we're paying for that. And so is the Roman church. And so are sort of some of the other churches as well. But we did this all the while preaching a morality of sexual morality of teenagers shouldn't be having sex and blah, blah, blah. All these rules that we tried to place on people and their relational lives saying, don't do that. That's bad. That's naughty. Don't do that. Meanwhile, there was this big cover up going on and it happened in in sports. It happened with Joe Paterno at Penn State. Happened all over these other industries as well. Over and over again, abusive people were able to thrive and survive and keep doing what they were doing. Meanwhile, they were telling everybody, don't do this bad stuff. And this is what we see in the life of Solomon. I see a vast cover-up of a deep immorality of Solomon um, that is systematic. It's perfectly legal, and he gets away with it. And yet God notices. And God says, this kind of stuff you're doing is different than the kind of stuff that David did. Luther said, sin boldly and follow Christ more boldly still. That references to a guy who comes to Luther and says, you know, I have all these, I don't know if I love God enough all the time. The other day I was a little wavery in my love for God. And he was doing all this sort of soul introspection and like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I'm this, sometimes I'm that. And all this internal kind of conflict. And Luther said, you need to go out and get drunk. Get drunk tonight and then come back and confess that because that's a real thing that you can confess. This other stuff that's internal of, I don't know where I'm at, what I feel, like that is not sin to have internal conflict over God. That's not a sin. That's just our own scrupulosity or something like that. And Luther said, if you're going to do something terrible, do it out in front of everybody so everybody can see it and go, oh, look at that. 
and they'll get over it and you'll get over it because everybody knows now. The kind of sin that really corrupts people is the kind of stuff that they hide, the kind of stuff that we don't talk about, the kind of stuff that we suffer with in silence, the kind of stuff we never say to anybody. And that is what I've seen in every single case of big cover-ups of evil, is that people felt like they couldn't talk to anybody about what they were doing. And they didn't trust anybody and there was nowhere to go. And so it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And more people got hurt and hurt and hurt. And so this is the kind of stuff that Solomon is doing. And God hates it with a passion. Whereas the stuff that David did, it was all fixable to some degree or another. In other words, judgment happened. It was swift. He got over it and he's back. Solomon never gets over it. And so uh, we see this in the, the book Ecclesiastes. This is Solomon's reflection on the fact that he married a thousand women and it wasn't enough. If you ever think that whatever it is you need and want, and even when you have it, you want more of it, that's a good sign that this is some other need. As Epictetus or one of the old, or Juvenal, the old Roman philosopher said, if you have a sweater and you want another sweater, it's not a sweater that you want. <laughs> it's something else that you can't fill with a sweater, a new one. I'm talking about sweaters in 100 degrees, I know. Amen. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I invite your intercessions or thanksgivings at this time. Mm -hmm.